The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Amen. Take a copy of the Bible and open it or turn it on and turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 20. First time that we did uh, an Iron on Iron conference, we didn't actually call it Iron on Iron. We called it the Youth Pastors Roundtable. And uh, eight guys showed up. We met downstairs in the office. We sat around the table. Tried that for three or four years. Struggled to make it work. Then we decided to try offering it for free. And several hundred people started showing up. And I was like, oh, yeah, these people work in student ministry. <laughs> None of them have any money. Um, so it's really, uh, it, it is a blessing that you're here. It's something that, this is something that we're passionate about. It's something we're super committed to and praying that this will actually grow. It has grown over the years and praying that it will grow and be even uh, farther in, in reach. Uh, we do have a record, I think. We got a crew here from Wyoming, so that's pretty cool. Where y'all at? <laughs> True cowboys and girls. Uh, so flew from Jackson to L.A. I thought we did things backwards in the south. Uh, Jackson, L.A. to Atlanta, drove here, long, long trip. So we're not even going to do that thing where you ask who came the farthest. I think we already know. So um, that's good. I was reading recently. I was, I was going back through a book by Paul David Tripp called Dangerous Calling. Any of you read that? We gave that out a few years ago. Going through that book, and I looked on the back cover of that book, and on the back cover of that book, there were five endorsements, and three of those endorsements since 2017 have been nationally in the spotlight for walking away from the faith. So three of the five, 60% of the men who endorsed a book about not walking away from the faith, 60% of ministry leaders who endorsed a book by a ministry leader that was, that was a really phenomenal book, by the way, very helpful for me in my ministry and my personal walk, that focused specifically on things like burnout, personal holiness, the importance of accountability, faithfulness to the Word of God. 60% of the people that were notable enough to be put on the back cover of that book, to endorse that book, have walked away or fallen away from the gospel ministry that God's called them to. Should we be warned by that? Yeah, absolutely. And so the teaching focus and theme of the week, weekend rather, is found faithful. And so I want to look at a, a, a moment in Paul's life, the Apostle Paul. I've entitled this message, man, this is such a Baptist evangelical. I know we're not all Baptists, but I am. Snowbird's not. I am. This is such a... a <laughs> Here's my title. You ready? <laughs> Don't try to write this down. You need to focus on the next 35 minutes of the, of the sermon. You'll never get there. Learning from the best, Paul and a lifelong ministry of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. There's a lot in that title, and there's a lot that we can learn from what many would consider the greatest missionary, the greatest church planner, greatest pastor that the world has ever known. Definitely anointed by God to a very special work that we benefit from 2,000 years later. Responsible for pinning a large portion of the New Testament. And I want to I hone in on 
one moment in Paul's life and specifically one statement in Paul's life that most of us are probably familiar with in verse 24. And I want to I want to see how that verse sort of encapsulates several decades long gospel ministry that literally changed the world. And, and I want to look at 17 things that we can learn from that. I want to elaborate. It's not a 17 point sermon, so don't worry. 17 things that we learn, just, just quick takeaways that we learn from the ministry of Paul. So let's go to Acts chapter 20, beginning verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink, may we be able to say that in our ministries. I did not shrink. The writer of Hebrews says we are not of those who shrink back. We do not have ground to give in gospel ministry when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel and the discipleship of students and families. Paul could say he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Here's our, here's our focus verse. But I do not account my life, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken and that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, please bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word. Give us hearts that have ears that might hear and the humility to receive and respond that we all might be found faithful in the ministry you've called us to. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. So how we got to this point in the text, a little review from the life of Paul, particularly in the book of Acts, 
It's often been pointed out by teachers and preachers that no individual has ever had more impact on the world, on the wor- world than the Apostle Paul. He set the standard for personal discipleship, ministry mentorship, church planning, local pastorate, local ministry, domain engagement, global missions, the importance of theologically grounded ministry, Christ-centered, gospel-driven, expository biblical preaching, and a high view of the sovereignty of God while at the same time demanding by the authority of the gospel that all men commit themselves through faith and repentance and obedience to Jesus. So we learn a lot from the Apostle Paul. He's basically given us the framework for all local church ministry and missions. Paul had grown up in a home that placed an emphasis on Hebrew law, education, and Old Covenant theology. He was expert in the ways of Judaism. He grew up going to church and Hebrew school and attended the highest levels of seminary and law school. He lived in the city of Tarsus, which was one of the largest megacities in the Roman Empire and was known for university life. Post early adult, uh, most early adult life was committed to the advance of Judaism under Roman rule. This included the persecution of Christians. And in the midst of this persecution, God saved Paul in one of the most spectacular conversion stories we read about in Acts chapter 9. Paul was trained most likely in Jerusalem under one of the greatest and most well-known leaders in the ways of Jewish law and served in the highest ranks of Jewish religious life. He had status. His unique background gave him audience with both Jews and Romans. Much of Paul's early ministry was strategically going into Jewish synagogues because he had the credentials to do so, and there he would preach the gospel in Jewish Old Covenant context. And what Paul would go into, if you go back and you look through Acts, what Paul would do is he would show up in a town. You know, he had the credentials. He wore the robes. he He was a credentialed leader in the Jewish religion, so he would come into Jewish synagogue. This is why he says in Romans uh, chapter 1, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And so Paul's pattern of ministry was show up in a town. You remember from Bible history that um, the Jewish uh, nation was scattered throughout all of the Babylonian empire, then scattered again under the Persian empire, then scattered more under the Greek empire, and eventually scattered on the, under the Roman empire, literally to the ends of the earth. So the idea of the great commission to Paul was go to all people under the Roman empire to the ends of the earth. And what he would do is he would go into a town, a village, a city. He would find the Jewish synagogue. He would go into the Jewish synagogue. He had credentials to be there. They would bring him on stage because because of those credentials, he would preach Jewish Old Testament Bible and then say, all of this is fulfilled in Christ. Half of them would come to faith in Jesus and half of them would want to kill him, beat him, throw him in prison and persecute him. That was Paul's MO and he's really good at it. Likewise, he could debate on the largest Greek and Roman stages. He often used these platforms to proclaim the gospel. He spoke in defense of the gospel before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Roman king, Governors, legal counsel, Jewish kings, universities, and he even preached the gospel at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. If we were going to compare this to modern preaching, we would possibly examine the ministries of Billy Graham or Ravi Zacharias. In modern context, Paul preached at the halftime of the Super Bowl, on the stage of the Grammys, and at the graduation ceremonies of Harvard, Yale, or the greatest universities of our day, and would have even potentially stood before the Supreme Court. 
Paul planted churches throughout the Roman world, and those churches were effective in advancing the gospel. He spent a good time, a good bit of time in Ephesus, where we come to now establishing the church there and training elders to lead when he left. The time there was eventful, and all of that is recorded in Acts chapter 19. But there are seven incidents in that narrative that make up the time spent in Ephesus by the missionary team coordinated and led by Pastor Paul. We learn from from that time spent in Ephesus what biblical missions and local church ministry should look like. In fact, there are seven things that Paul teaches us uh, practically in Acts chapter 19, and those seven things are this. Paul corrects deficient theology. Paul is bold in his preaching ministry. There's opposition, but Paul does not back down or shrink back, but rather overcomes it. Paul shows us what it looks like when miracles are used effectively in ministry. Paul's ministry has a large, widespread impact on the society and culture at large. And then Paul, as, a, as his ministry grows, is met with opposition. And in Ephesus, the gospel is preached, Jesus is held up, and there is no attack on Ephesian religion, and there is no call to rebellion against the government. There is simply a clear presentation of the gospel, a discipling of local leaders who are trained up as the church is established. You'll remember at the church in Ephesus, the biggest riot that we read about in the book of Acts occurs, all because of the preaching of the gospel. So it's not without conflict that Paul's ministry is established in Ephesus. Paul leaves Ephesus, begins to continue on missionary church planning work, and is swinging back through the area, but is not going to make it quite to Ephesus. And so he calls for the leaders of Ephesus to come and meet with him. And that brings us to the text that we've read today. And when we key in on verse 24, In Paul's statement, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And I would say this, here are 17 lessons that Paul teaches us in his ministry in the book of Acts. Number one, Paul's spirit was inconquerable. It was inconquerable. It was unconquerable. It could not be conquered. He knew his calling. He, knew, he once would say, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is faithful to keep what he's committed to me, in me, and through me against whatever the day brings. He's committed. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the execution of the mission and the calling and responsibility given by God even in the presence of fear. Paul had been stoned at Lystra and left presumed dead, but he went right back into Lystra when God revived him. To withstand Elymas, the sorcerer, face-to-face required courage. At Philippi, Paul was beaten. At Athens, he stood toe-to-toe with the intellectuals of the day. In Corinth, he actually faced depression, ministry burnout, loneliness, and a realization of the weightiness and fallenness of that city. And in Ephesus, he survived a huge riot. And when he came to Jerusalem and Caesarea later in in his ministry to face Roman governors and Jewish kings, not once did he ever shrink back. What we learn from Paul is not to be without fear, but to have confidence in the calling of God on your life that overrides that fear. He showed us that when you're confident in your calling and purpose, you will press on in the most difficult situations. Paul, in a word, was bold. Number two. We learn from Paul's vision for ministry, clarity, and strategy. Paul's vision for ministry was clear and strategic. Paul worked hard and had a high view of the sovereignty of God, but he understood that men and women 
As men and women, we have great responsibility to carry out the calling and plans and purposes of the Lord. Sometimes there seems to be the misconception that because or when and if I hold to a higher view of the sovereignty of God, then I simply don't have to do much work. I remember hearing a, a, a prominent pastor many years ago say, I think he used this, this line, something like, we preach like Calvinists and we sleep like Arminian. Arminians, I think is how it went. I don't like that. We preach like we have a high view of the sovereignty of God and we labor till our knuckles bleed. And we plead and we beg with people to come to faith in Jesus. And we say with Spurgeon, if we had to crawl across a desert of glass to see one conversion, we would do it. And we don't rest when there are students in our ministry who don't know Jesus. We lose sleep. We pace and walk the floor. We're up early. We're up late. We keep a journal or a notepad by our bed so that we might jot down names and ideas that God brings to our mind even in our sleep. There is no rest from labor when you have been called to this ministry. We trust in a high view of the sovereignty of God. And Paul shows us that but demands everything from us in our pursuit of personal holiness the execution of the Great Commission, and the building of the church. God had given Paul a clear calling to plant churches throughout the Roman world. God had repeatedly reaffirmed that calling, and Paul had confidence in that. Got to have confidence in our calling, and we need vision for ministry, and that vision needs to be clear and strategic. We might borrow from the secular world. I, I read a lot of, I don't know if you guys read corporate America books. I read them. I just ordered one called... Uh, one-minute manager. I want to get to where I can give instruction quick, concise, so that my guys aren't sitting there going, oh, another one of those 10-minute meetings that last 37 minutes. You know, I want to be clear, concise, strategic. We need a vision. We need strategy. It needs to be clear, and everybody on our team needs to get it and be able to move forward. And a lot of times we have to borrow from the secular world to get that, but Paul shows us what that, what that looks like. Number three, Paul's faith was deeply rooted in what God had done and revealed to him through the risen Lord. In other words, the importance of the gospel, the importance of the resurrection drove Paul's ministry. We learn from Paul the importance of a constant and daily reflection on the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth of this gospel. And we too should be reminded of this gospel daily. Paul told them there in that text in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and in which you are being saved. There's this ongoing work of the gospel in the life of the believer, not just in what we preach and proclaim and lead as small group leaders, as moms, as dads, but there's this work of the gospel that is constant and ongoing in my own heart and life. The gospel drives what I do. There's a popular uh, phrase that's been coined in the last few years that's a really good phrase, and the phrase is gospel-centered. We want ministries that are gospel-centered. At Snowbird, we've sort of adjusted and adapted that, and we talk about gospel-driven ministry. It's centered around the gospel, and it's driven by the engine of the gospel. Paul shows us what that looks like, and he reminded himself and his believers that he was responsible for of the gospel daily. Number four, Paul did not work alone. He understood the need for a team. As sure, we must work together to carry out the vision and mission God has called us to for the global and historical church triumphant. We must know what Jesus has laid out in Scripture as our mission of making disciples of all people. And locally, we need to know who we are and what our responsibility is to our communities and our families. 
Paul built a team. He understood the importance of a team. It's a bunch of people on your team. Should be, should be more than one person on your team. And the gifts offset and complement. And it's okay that this person's better at one thing than I am. And this person's better at something else than I am. It takes, for those of us, the, probably a third of us are actually leaders of a student ministry. And for us, we can't be threatened by the gifts of others. We need to be encouraged and charged and excited by the gifts of others. That's what's going to expand and multiply our ministry. Number five, Paul believed in and practiced personal mentorship. He invested deeply in the de development of young pastors like Timothy, Titus, John Mark. And then he said to those young pastors, imitate me. And so he lived a life worthy of imitation as he pursued Christ. Number six, Paul loved the church. He loved the body of Christ. There's sometimes a negative outlook toward the church. It's easy to find what is wrong with the church and to identify things we do not like about the church. But the church is the bride of Christ. It would be unhealthy for one man to talk about the things he doesn't like about another man's wife. Picture this. <laughs> There's two lessons in these last two points. One is, you don't, you don't talk to another dude about the things you don't like about his wife. Right? Hey, man, I got, a, <clears throat> I got some issues I want to bring before you. It's about your wife, man. She's annoying. She's obnoxious. I know there's people you want to say that to. You would like to say that to. <laughs> she, you know, she, she, ah, she does that thing where she's the center of attention. And, but, but, but how about this? Paul so loves the bride of Christ because he loves the groom of the bride. And he doesn't want to rob from the affections of the groom I've heard this illustration used before by pastors where, you know, I do a lot, I do a lot of weddings. In fact, the Zortmans are here. Almost the Zortmans will be the Zortmans on October 6th. At least that's the day I'm showing up. We good? Okay. All right. So, uh, so, so I, I do weddings and, and, you know, we're in a ministry where we're dealing with uh, a lot of 18 to 25 year olds. And I love doing weddings, man. I heard a pastor say one time, I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. And I thought you should quit and get another job, dude. Like, <laughs> folks getting married, that's better than folks kicking a bucket. All right, so uh, I love that moment. And y'all know what I'm talking about in the, in, the, in the ceremony. And I'm standing down front, and the groomsmen are here, depending on the, you know, the taste of the bride and the wealth of the family, one or two or 10 or 12. And then you got the gals over here, and you're standing there. And when that moment where the bride appears, who's everybody look at? This dude right here. What's he doing? Sometimes he's crying. Sometimes he's grinning. Sometimes he's like, <laughs> you know, like, but he's fixed on her. He sees the bride, man. He's focused on her. And she, she's just in all of her splendid glory making that entrance into the scene. Now, what happens if the best man is, is making eyes at the bride? Right here, I'm your guy. I'm the guy. Look, look, look how good I look. Look, he. I know why your man picked this color because look how good I look. Like, what, what would, what would we make of that? We would, we would be appalled and offended, and and hopefully the groom would would punch that guy in the throat. You know, like, like that's not the way it works. The, the, these guys are here to stand behind and support what this man is here to do on this day, and so we are groomsmen and bridesmaids and those who labor for the bridegroom and for the bride. And so Paul cared about Jesus and he loved the church, the bride of Christ. Sometimes he criticized her openly, but always it was out of love and with purpose and obedience. 
Jesus Christ has told us that he has a bride and she is the church. Paul loved the church and it is evident in the greetings and salutations he would send in his letters to the various cities and churches. He knew the church was not without her issues and he had a strong conviction and genuine desire to see her grow and become stronger. Number seven, Paul preached with authority that was not his own but came from God. We can learn from Paul what it looks like to speak with authority, speak unapologetically, speak with conviction, not shrink back. The power that drove Paul's preaching was from the Lord. Paul knew that the Spirit of God dwelt in him richly, whether he was preaching or debating on the largest and greatest stages of the day or in a one-on-one gospel conversation. He was unapologetic and unwavering in his commitment to preach Jesus Christ and his gospel. For those of us that pastor and preach or teach even in the small group setting here are some things we've learned about preaching and its place in the local church through the ministry of paul number one we learned the primacy of preaching preaching is the primary function of the ministry of the church we learn the primacy of preaching number two we learn the persistence of preaching there's never a need to come up with a better way like preaching is it, man. There's, there, is in, there is in many denominations a move away from the primacy and persistence of preaching. Our ministries will never be anything if they're not built around the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. That is where discipleship begins. The centerpiece of our services cannot be a skit, a sketch, a video clip. The centerpiece of the service must be Jesus And the proclamation of the word of God, handled faithfully, handled rightly. And so we also learn the pervasiveness of preaching. This is the need to spread the gospel through the world by preaching. Preaching is not just critical for the church, it's critical for the world and for the advance of the gospel. Number four, we see the power of preaching. Paul's preaching is gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, and expository always, which brings us to the final, which is proper preaching. Proper preaching doesn't say, where's the anecdote? Where's three quick points and a funny illustration? Proper preaching says, what was God intending to say in this text? What does God mean for these people to hear and for me to communicate? Because I don't want to get outside of those lines. God knows what he's saying. And it's not by my authority or my wisdom, or my counsel, or my creativity, then I'm able to say what God's saying. It's by the hard, laborious work of digging into the Scripture and finding the meaning of the text and saying, here it is, and holding it forth so that the bride of Christ might see her groom more clearly and respond more faithfully. Number eight, Paul lived by faith. He wrote to the Galatians, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul would write in one of his letters, we walk by faith, not by sight. And he would remind us that the righteous live by faith. Number nine, Paul believed in the power of prayer. This was true personally, as well as for the ministry and growth and mission of the church. Number 10, Paul knew his own limitations and the need to depend fully on the Lord. If you're having a hard time keeping up, this will be posted. I know a lot of you are trying to write notes, and I'm moving quickly through some of these. Paul knew his own limitations and the need to depend fully on the Lord. Number 11, Paul was serious about his walk with Jesus and personal holiness. Paul was as passionate about ministry as a person can be, but he did not put that before his own devotion and personal worship. 
This is a mistake a lot of us make in ministry. Probably have all been there, all done that. We can easily become so consumed with doing the tasks God has given that we fail to maintain intimacy with Jesus and we lose focus on the most important thing. There's several sayings around here that I say a lot, and anybody that serves on this staff could probably finish the sentences. Like, for instance, one of them I'll say is, take a day off, get eaten by a lion. It comes from a story in the book of Kings where uh, a prophet preaches faithfully, is momentarily disobedient, and a lion eats him. God sends a lion. And so we use that to talk about there's no days off in ministry, but there's a couple other ones. One is by a Scottish pastor that many of you might know that has been accredited with saying this. His name's Robert McShane, and he says this. He says, the greatest need my people have for me is my personal holiness. I don't have to be gifted so much that people are blown away by my gifts. I don't have to be clever or comical or creative first and foremost. I need to be holy. Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. Paul knew his own limitations and Paul knew the critical importance of his personal walk with Jesus. Number 12, Paul believed that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. This gave him an urgency to do the work but a fearlessness of what man might do to him. Paul did not fear death. Number 13, Paul believed that this world is temporal and that one day Jesus is returning to make all things new. Judge every deed, every word and thought and to establish an eternal kingdom in which he will reign forever and ever. Paul believed this. We have to believe this. We believe I don't know what you believe about eschatology, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, amel, amel, post-mail, pre I don't know anything. I know Jesus is coming back and going to open up a can on some people <laughs> and going to establish a kingdom. And it's going to, that kingdom's going to be about him, not me. I know there is an end to the savagery of this world. I know that 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 year old girls in your ministry that you got to sit down and minister to because somebody molested them for five years of their childhood. I know that's going to come to an end. I know 60% of your students coming from broken homes, that's going to come to an end. I know the, the fact that there are days where we don't have answers to give to the questions that are being asked. I know that that's going to come to an end and that we are laboring for a prize that is eternal in a kingdom that will never end where there ain't even going to be a sunshine because the radiant, brilliant glory of Jesus will be brighter than the brightest day. And everything will be right there and tears will be wiped away. And we won't bury teenagers, five teenagers that attended Snowbird this year have been killed. And many of us have had to stand over casket the coffin of one of our students that's gone to be with the Lord at such a young age there's going to be a day where that don't happen we believe in the return of Jesus you can argue about how and when that's going to happen but you don't get to argue about if it's going to happen and number 14 Paul showed us how to engage hostility there's a lot of hostility in our society dividing people politically and ideologically as Christians there's a way to engage the enemies of the gospel Paul shows us what that looks like boycotting Starbucks or Levi Strauss or Disney World. I don't know if that was Paul's main method of doing things. I'm not throwing off on that. Paul engaged a hostile culture by loving people well, but not backing down from the proclamation of the gospel. Number 15, Paul taught us how to deal with ministry 
induced depression and anxiety. And it happens, doesn't it? It happens. Paralyzed with fear, anxious, burnout is real. I want to encourage you to to get on the, the slow app and listen to a breakout that Spencer Davis did this summer with student pastors on burnout. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's real. And Paul taught us, Paul shows us in, in uh, Acts chapter 18 during his time at Corinth what that looks like. Number 16, Paul shows us incarnational ministry. Look at verse 18 in our text. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. There's times, y'all, I ain't gonna lie, where I think if I have to watch one more middle school volleyball game, I'm gonna take anxiety and depression to a new level. If I have to go to one more choral concert in the gymnasium of Andrews High School, I'm going to turn to substance. <laughs> you know, like there's times in student ministry where I'm going, I, do I have to go do this? It's incarnational ministry. It's incarnational. It means in flesh ministries. Jesus exampled this for us. And Paul got it right. He did it, man. I know, like I'm telling you, my weeks and I know yours are too. And I'm not a student pastor anymore. I'm, I'm working. We've got at Red Oak Church, we've got an incredible couple leading our student ministry. But I feel a deep responsibility to be at those games and be at those concerts and to invest in those students. Y'all know as good as I do, students must be invested in relationally. You cannot expect to show up once a week and, 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 and spout it out and they're just, it's going to change their lives. Man, we had, a dude, we had 300 students here last week from a church in Warner Robins, Georgia. And that church has three campuses and each campus functions independently. So each has its own pastors, pastoral staff. It's not like a, where they do the, the, the pastor on a movie screen or whatever. It's, it's three individual campuses, but they work together in their student ministry. And one of those campuses has been strategically planted literally in the hood. The main campus is predominantly upper middle class white people. And they have planted a church now with a very diverse pastoral team in the hood. And they showed up here with about 25 teenagers from literally the hood. I ain't never been in the hood, y'all. I mean, I hear guys, oh, man, I came from the hood. Not me. I come to the side of a mountain about 50 miles from here. <laughs> the first in-flesh black person I ever saw, I was probably 17 years old. Like, literally. Like, people, I remember getting to college and playing ball, and, and, and five of us were white and ten were black. And I remember, I remember it was like the first time I was around people that didn't look like me, act like me, talk like me. It was, it was I mean, it was cool. I wasn't like, whoa, this is weird. It was like, whoa, there's oh, there's other people that live a different way and there's other people from different walks of life and there's actually other people with different skin color and things like that. And so there's this, there's this need to diversify when it comes to ministry sometimes and this church is doing it beautifully. This guy's here, man, and this guy, this, this pastor is killing it. He's crushing it. And I watched him sit out here on the front porch, and the way, he's, the way he's done it is by opening the gym on Friday afternoons at their church, and they got 40 to 50 students from that community, kids from that community showing up to play basketball, and only three or four of them will come to church yet. 
Six months in, I got three coming to church on Sunday, but 40 are there to play basketball on Friday night. He said, man, I'm learning so much. I know that I just got to press in, got to press in, got to press in. And I watched him this past Sunday night sit right outside on this porch with six of those young men, 17, 16, 17, 18-year-old young men, captivated as he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And one of them is going to be baptized. And the other five are going to come to faith in Jesus, I believe, because he's doing pastoral ministry. He's picking them up and taking them to job sites and helping them get their GEDs and working to invest in their lives. And y'all know incarnational ministry is how we have to engage students. And Paul taught us that. And number 17, lastly, Paul had a living hope. If we don't have hope, we might as well hang up the gloves got nothing if we don't have hope because y'all know there's a lot of days in ministry where the thing you need more than anything is a little thread of hope and if you've got that you'll be okay if you've got that you'll believe that Jesus is going to win the day and that students lives are going to be changed and some of you are in a dry season there's conflict with your pastor there's conflict with people in the church there's dryness in ministry there's dryness in your soul there's a lack of receptivity from students i don't know where you're at what's going on but, but know this the bible says we have been called to a living hope in other words our hope is ongoing and is eternal and the source of our hope is eternal and so in our worst days in ministry we get to rest on the reality that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the gifts and calling of God, according to Paul's letter to the Romans, is that those gifts and that calling are irrevocable. God called us. He equips us. He will not leave us. And God's given you a certain gifting that he intends to use through you. I'll never forget at my dad's funeral, my dad had a crazy story because my early childhood, he was a pastor. And then he walked away from the Lord, left my mom, and he went back to a world of drugs and alcohol. He was part of a motorcycle club and predominantly made up of veterans. And I remember at his funeral, a small mountain town here in Western North Carolina, and he had been out of pastoral ministry for over two decades, I guess. Something like that. 15 years, maybe. And I remember these, remember the night before the funeral, we're doing the viewing. It was supposed to be from 6 to 8, and at 4 o'clock they opened up the doors and people started pouring in. And for six and a half hours we stood while 2,500 people from a small mountain town flowed through to shake our hands. I didn't know 90% of them. And it, and it became a broken record, people saying to me, your dad was there for me. I felt like he was my friend. And towards the end, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with some of his biker buddies. These are guys that he drugged with, ran with, drunk with, partied with in the latter years of his life. He died at a fairly young age. I think he was 53, 54, something like that. And these men would tell me stories man, we were at such and such at this rally and we were up in South Dakota, we were out in San Diego, we were down in the Keys, we were all over the place, they'd ride those motorcycles and, he, and they would say, hey, your dad sat up with me all night helping me work through some stuff. And I thought, oh yeah, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. See, God's put something in you that even in your defiance and disobedience, you can't get away from. 
And that should produce hope to know that you're not alone in this calling. Your faithfulness doesn't rest on you, it rests on Jesus. If, you could, if your faithfulness rested on you, you would be found unfaithful. Being found faithful comes through resting our lives on the reality that Jesus is faithful, that he's the author of our faith, he's the author of our calling, and he'll never leave us or forsake us. Amen? I will pray, and we will sing a song of worship together. Lord, I pray that you would take your word, give root and bear fruit in our lives. As ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray. Help us to lead the ministries you've called us to, to encourage students, encourage one another, to labor tirelessly for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be found faithful, knowing that Whatever we encounter and endure, whether it is in lay ministry, volunteer work, bivocational ministry, or in full-time vocational ministry, that there will come a day where we will have the opportunity, even in all of our failures, even in the accountability we will have to give for those things we've done and said that were wrong, we will get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That'll be a joy. So help us to get there, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.